Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aim Sisters podcast. You're here today with your hosts, Anna and Maria Sade, bringing your favorite twin talk of the week. And in this episode, we're going to talk about something really important, that is the topic of decolonization. And we decided to talk about this because last week we were faced with a heartbreaking news that in BC, Canada, they found a mass grave with the bodies of 215 children in a place that used to be a residential school. For those who are not familiar with the concept of residential schools, there was, these were schools that children of indigenous people, they had to go in the US and Canada. Uh, the one we're talking specifically was one in Canada and it was created by the government of Canada and run by the Christian or the Catholic church at the time. So children, they were taken away from their communities and they were placed into those boarding schools where they were thought ways of living as Westerners. So they could not speak their own languages. They could not practice their religious beliefs. They could not interact with even their own siblings because boys and girls, they were separated. Um, so it was a very traumatizing period. Those schools were running from the 1880s until 1996 when the last school was closed. And the conditions they were living there were so terrible that the mortality rate was very high inside those schools. Yes, it is something incredibly horrible that lasted for a very long time, thinking that we were born in 1996. It's crazy, crazy to think that some children were undergoing those circumstances and that the abduction of culture, denying someone from speaking their own language and all those things is literally eradicating anything from their traditions and not allowing their nation to continue. I mean, they already caused mass extermination when they arrived, not only by means of guns and all those things, but also by like biological warfare. Because, yes, by diseases. So I was watching a TED talk by Nikki Sanchez and she's an activist of indigenous rights and really amazing. I truly recommend the episode on TED Talk, but she was explaining that specifically in Canada, for example, when the British, in the area of British Columbia, they did the vaccination for smallpox that exterminated 90% of the indigenous population because they didn't have the antibodies to deal with the disease and all those things. And also how not only various, various ways stopped people from living in the land. So even like abducting animals and killing ways of subsistence of them was another thing the settlers did. And I think the most important thing to think about is that all those things, they leave a big trauma generationally. And not only in people who are descendants of First Nation people, but also on the descendants of settlers and also people who migrated there, because this is a collective issue. It's not something, of course, we cannot change the past, but we, we must be responsible for how we deal with things in the present. Yeah, and talking about the present, well, we talked this week because of the news that they found those children, the mass grave, but, that, but as some people who already knew about the residential schools, they were not surprised 
because they knew that many people were dying there. About 50% of children who went to those residential schools, they died. It's incredible. And But even nowadays, children are being taken away from indigenous parents. In most cases, as you can find many news about this or websites that talk about how many indigenous children are taken by the government to foster care or just to, like by, um, how do I say, social workers, because they think the conditions are not good enough for the children to grow up, because many of them, they live in a very marginalized position in society. So they believe the children would be better off with different parents or not with their original community. I was saying like only in BC, 51% of children in care are Aboriginal. And that's because only 8% of the population of BC are Aboriginal, but still like 51% of their children, of the children in the government care are from those populations, which is very alarming. It is. And I think there are so many layers to this because like you said, they're a marginalized community. So it's really hard without government support and all those things to change the situation. And also we must be careful because government must support their own ways of living and not imposing something else. So it's a really fine line into how to restore, how to you know, enrich what they already have, but bringing conditions that they, they can keep their children and all those things. So I think this is, at least in the Americas, this is a topic that is extremely sensitive, like from north to south. This is a land that was stolen from the First Nations everywhere. So I think we are from Brazil and it's a big example. Like We don't learn in school anything about indigenous populations. We don't learn who were, you know, the nations who inhabited the place we were living. And it does carry a lot of shame in that too, that we don't know that history. That history was erased and someone chose not to teach this, you know. So I think learning about it and even like recovering this knowledge that was purposely ignored is a claim for decolonization too. And even when you talk about policies that take into consideration their ways of living and not the westernized mentality, you know, it's also a way of decolonization for sure. It's a way of recognizing their needs, but in a way that represents themselves and not the what the government wants for them, right? Yeah. Letting them speak, speak for themselves and say what they need. Another big thing that when talking about um, the indigenous population is that I found a movement called. Um, Before you go into that, I want to try something that, like you said, indigenous people have to represent themselves. But the big problem is, at least I think in Brazil too, but I know in the United States is like this, like for a group to be considered indigenous population, they need to show that they are, which is ridiculous in my opinion, because they expect 
you know, indigenous populations to be stuck in time, which is, it doesn't happen. So what we consider tradition changes throughout, throughout time. Like in Western society, it changes throughout time. So why don't we understand that for indigenous population? Because they have to show what they call regalia, that is like traditional clothing and traditional ways, traditional ways of living with in quotes, because to prove that they're indigenous population, they deserve to have that land that is actually just a tiny bit of land that they can live in their own way. But if you think about it, they were an entire nation that got its country was removed from them. And now some stranger comes and say, oh, but it should look like this. It should act like this. It should worship like this. And it is extremely problematic. They know who they are. Yes. I even saw um, a website talking about some girls and about the thing I was going to comment, but uh, some of these populations, they, they were um, community, indigenous community, and then the government said they did what you said, like, oh, you have to prove, and then they were not anymore. But then with time, they could regain their identity as an indigenous tribe, indigenous community. But throughout this process, some people, they were in the files of um, of the government itself, those people who were part of that community, they ended up being um, categorized as white or as Asian sometimes, even though they were Native Americans. And even after going back to their original position as Native Americans, they, their registration was not changed. So there are a lot of mistakes in the registration of Native Americans. Imagine, you're Asian, what? (laughs) You're white, what? Makes no sense. Just think about the name indigenous. It comes from people who thought it was India. (laughs) Yeah, that's why most of the times they call themselves Native Americans. And what I was going to mention before is that um, while searching about what happened in the residential schools and all more about the indigenous communities in Canada, I found that there was a movement that was called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And I was not aware of that. And actually something that happened throughout history in a very long time, even nowadays. And it's very problematic and something that happens not only in Canada, but in many other places like Brazil. Sister was saying, yeah. So many of the cases of women who go missing, sometimes they are they are definitely underreported. There is not enough um, police stations around reservations, and sometimes they are very um, secluded and very far away from places with, you know, police and how to say with security systems. They are very isolated. And sometimes when exploring industries like logging and mining, they sometimes have those temporary jobs close to those reservations. And there happens many uh, violences and problems because many men, they go to those places in a temporary 
way. And then during those times, sometimes women goes missing. Women go missing because of this type of job. Sometimes they're very they're happening in very poor conditions as well. But the populations that are there, they are threatened. Yeah, this is extremely horrible. And I was telling my sister that a similar dynamic happens in Brazil as well, especially in the north, because there is the logging industry is really big and also mining. So the same situation happens, but sometimes it's not with indigenous people only, like indigenous women, but also like people who have lower class kind of don't have conditions to sustain themselves. So a lot of girls, they also end up in sex industry and all those things forcibly because of their low income. And it's just horrible, the situation. And I think it, it all relates to colonization. Even looking at things that are happening right now, it's a way to confronting colonization. And also decolonizing our minds to be able to see that those, those things are not something that happened for no reason. They're happening because there is a history behind it. Every kind of oppression, there is a history behind it. And in our countries, it's a history of colonization. Yeah. I think I give an extremely value because in Brazil, at least, like whatever is from the north is really valued. That is extremely a colonial mind. What do you mean? North America, not north of Brazil. <laughs> no, North America and Europe as well. In the past, Europe especially. And I think we put those, you know, standards for how we should be because we don't consider ourselves good enough. Because historically, we've been told by settlers, by people who invaded our places, that we were not good enough, that you are less because you live here. And even like those whole stories about how in Brazil at least, that of course countries of the South cannot be rich because people are lazy and all those things. Looking at indigenous people, I mean, they didn't live in a capitalist system. You came here, forced that into them. They didn't have to live in that way. They didn't, they just did trade sometimes with tribes that live nearby, but like, they had their entire system of living and it was all together, like religion and economy and society and all those things were one. And then people just looked from the outside and didn't even take the time to understand their ways of living and it's just judged. And then especially European writers, by consequence, judged the entire country to be like that. So. And it's a mindset that still goes on into nowadays, which I think is the worst because our ways of learning, our ways of living is just really, is really conditioned. That's why I like, for example, the, the art movement that happened in Brazil in the twenties, the modernist movement, because they call it anthropophagia. That is like, they eat something from, because this means, because in Brazil, so let me start. In Brazil, some of the indigenous nations, yeah, let me go back. Some of the indigenous nations, they used to 
when they killed someone, someone that was their enemy, they would eat the enemy. So yeah, so it's kind of cannibalism thing would happen because they believe if they ingested the meat or part of the warrior who they killed, they would gain the powers of that person. So the artists in Brazil in the 1920s took that concept and said we should do the same about European concepts. So instead of just trying to apply them to us all at once, like we do when we have a colonized mind, we should just, just take the bits and pieces that are actually useful for our own system. So you eat that culture and you just digest what's necessary for you or what's good for you. So I think that's a, a good example of how a way of decolonizing and, and not just like shutting ourselves in the world, but like being able to interact with others, but still keeping our culture. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. Um, when you were mentioning how people do, don't try to see indigenous way of living through their own eyes and they just judge them. It's something that reminds me of environmentalism and how being able to live with your environment in a co cooperative way and not an exploitative way is extremely important nowadays. It's something that, as you said, if we, if we try to cooperate and work together, we can learn a lot from this traditional ways of living in order to have a more first egalitarian society but also one that respects our environment. And I think now, but I think capitalism is almost, you know, can go much further than that. There is not a lot, a lot of things capitalism can do anymore, in my opinion. So it's, maybe it's time to take a step back and try to learn from them. I'm not saying we're going to end capitalism from one day to, to the other, but slowly incorporating things that could help us to deal with problems we have nowadays, like climate change, you know, things that are very real and that are impacting our lives and the lives especially of marginalized people like indigenous population. Yes, that's right. And I think it goes in so many directions because of course there's this global scale of we can't stop climate change and all those things, adopting a more ecocentric mindset that we learn from those native people. But at the same time, we can think about our own personal lives. And like in the last episode, we talked about beauty standards. I mean, we have to decolonize beauty standards as well. We have to decolonize what we find, you know, appeasing and beautiful and all those things because um, it's just mad how things happen. And I've seen social media nowadays, I think it's good that it's showing other ways of living. So I even saw saw on Instagram one girl that she was doing, I think, throat singing. That is popular, I mean, is a traditional way of singing from the North, like North America. And they were forced to stop doing this because during colonization period. But nowadays she's recovering it and singing with her mother and showing to the world. And the following is growing a lot. And it's like, it's really beautiful to see how she's presenting something that was, you know, marginalized for so long to be able to be presented again 
to people, to young people and say, hey, this is us. This is beautiful too. You might not know this, but let me introduce to you. And people can appreciate and respect. Another thing is gender diversity. In many indigenous cultures, they had boys, girls, and two spirits. Two spirited, I guess, how they called it. So this is maybe one topic that we can explore a little more next week. But it's also something that we can learn from many indigenous traditions about accepting the other as the, the way they are without trying to change them, right? Yes. And I think and then, yeah, gender is really cultural because I even, it's not in the Americas, but there, are, I think, I don't remember, in Southeast Asia, there, there was this tribe that I was reading about that they, their concept of gender was also fluid and they believed that as men got older, they got more feminine and as women got older, they got more masculine because mm -hmm. they got in contact with each other. So women that had, for example, menstruation and all those things, it stops when she gets old. So she gained masculine traits and the same happens to men in different ways. So it's really interesting how they approach things. And yes, and the two-spirited people, they are actually revered in some communities because it's an honor to have those powerful masculine and feminine energies in one. And it's just really amazing. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that we need to do now is to evaluate our own thoughts and the way we see the world, trying to put into practice decolonization through our own actions and through our own mindset. You know, don't take things for granted. Question. Yeah. Try to inquire why this is happening and try to recognize that there is still a lot of grief and stress and trauma running through many, many people around the world, actually. Those who have been colonized, those who are descendants of col colonizers, of settlers, of immigrants nowadays. Yeah. So we have to be compassionate, but also don't, I mean, do not be ashamed by the past. Do not be frozen by the shame of the past, but, you know, take action and encourage others to join the conversation about decolonizing and having a new perspective on the institutions that are running our countries, on the economy that we use on the ways that we are living, the ways that we speak to each other, and the things we value, actually. Yes, and I think if you think about trauma, if you go into epigenetics, you can see that trauma is hereditary. You know, There are various generations that trauma can go on. It does affect your DNA structure. So when you feel grief about the past, you're actually feeling because it's in yourself. Because we are fruits of what happened in the past, but we can change. So I think a big lesson we can have, apart from what my sister said already, is to think, where are we now? Whose land is this land? So even myself, before coming to Korea, I studied quite a lot of Korean history. Whose land is this land I'm going? And even about when we go back or if, if we, whatever you are, think about that. 
even if you don't consider that it is a native land, you know, we all have histories of oppression that must be dismantled. So together we can do this. And empowering ourselves is learning and opening our eyes. So I hope we can do this together. This is just the beginning. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. I know it was a little bit difficult and it can be challenging for many of us, but it's a very important topic. And if everyone joined the conversation, we can make things change. So uh, if you enjoyed, please leave us a review on the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, we would really appreciate if you leave us a like, comment down below and share with your friends. Uh, and I hope to see you in the next video. Thank you so much and goodbye. Thank you so much. Bye.